0: Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Um, and today uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, for, for most of the month of August, we're going to be taking some, I'd like to think, well-earned time off. So we're going to be um, rebroadcasting some older episodes. Um, uh, and today we're going to be broadcasting an episode back in from 2021, all about kind of abusive church leadership. Um, and that kind of looked at some of the kind of scandals in in church leaders that have cropped up and and, and prompted some of the some discussion around around that, um particularly with Dad. Your work—you've been researching writing about friendship for a long time. um But we thought to kind of tee up this this older episode. We wanted to have a little brief kind of update about the sadly the latest kind of in the line of Christian, always men it seems Christian male leaders who have kind of fallen from grace. And that's a figure called called Mike pilavacci Have you been following that story much since it broke a few months ago?
1: Yeah, it's it's been a. Um, A really significant story in Christian press here in the UK Um, and Mike Pilovac is a very well-known figure in the charismatic uh, world here and particularly among youth and and largely related to an organisation called Soul Survivor. Which um, I don't know a huge amount about, but I think you you know more about it, Tim, don't you? So, so why don't you tell us a bit about Soul Survivor and, and what your link with it is?
0: Yeah, sure. So, so I did. Um, so, Soul Survivor was, in a nutshell, it was two things. It was a uh, a, a se- series of summer youth Christian festivals that ran for almost thirty years, from the early nineties till twenty nineteen, and then uh, almost started at the same time. There was a church called Soul Survivor Watford which was in a kind of suburb of London here in the UK that was started by the same group of people. Um, and that um, was a big kind of met in a, it was a kind of evangelical church plant, charismatic, met in a warehouse and an industrial estate, grew to be quite large in UK terms, I think approaching a thousand people uh, over time. And, and Soul Survivor um, was, uh, they were they grew to become absolutely enormous. You know, they would, they would, over several weeks in different locations across the UK, they would sometimes have as many as, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand young people come through the doors. Um,
1: and by UK standards, that's remarkable. Uh, it's enormous. I mean, enormous. In, in the states, uh, that would be less unusual. <laughs> yeah, in
0: in the for the for the small British evangelical church, that those were staggering numbers. You know, it was bigger than every other youth camp put together times by ten. I would say in terms of size. And these young people would come, uh, and they would camp in a in a showground somewhere in the UK. Um, it would mostly rain because that's what it does in the British <laughs> summer. Uh, and they would put up an enormous marquee in the middle of this these showground. Um, and they would basically have five, six days of uh, teaching, of lots and lots of live worship. They would do kind of smaller seminar, kind of breakout sessions on different topics. They would have sports events. There would be food trucks. Um, there would be Bible studies. There would be, you know, lots of stuff, what you'd expect on a kind of Christian summer camp. And people would basically bring the youth workers would bring their entire youth group from their church to come and camp together. No parents, just the youth worker. Um, and 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 yeah, I just it's hard to underestimate how influential these kind of self-survivor festivals became.
1: And what was the secret? I mean, I mean, are you getting disaffected youth, like, oh, I've go and have a week in a wet tent in some field singing <laughs> yeah. songs to God. I mean, really, <laughs> you've got to be joking, haven't you? yeah it's astonishing you know and and it wasn't just
0: christians coming you know it was very normal for youth groups to bring to invite your non-christian friends and to my shock people said yes sometimes and came along non-christians would come and spend a week at a christian explicitly christian festival you know um i think it was a number of things i think you know Partly they were very good at kind of understanding young people in a way that churches often aren't. And so they got that people like music and food and fun and they would do, you know, like zorbing and Nerf guns and go have lots of fun activities, five-a-side football tournaments. And they would have Xboxes and Playstations and like they made it at a, at a really kind of like fun way to get out of your house out in the school holidays. But I think also it was that they found this secret source for the kind of main gathering each evening. They would have a big kind of two or three hour kind of evening session on, in the big top, you know, with, you know, this is talking like maybe seven, 8, 9, 000, 10, 000 people cramming into a single enormous marquee. And they would have, you know, the biggest worship bands, um, they would have famous international speakers, but it was all hosted by Mike Pilavachi, who was, the founder of of this of this movement, um, and he was an incredibly interesting character. You know, came from a Greek background. I think um, quite a complicated family background. Uh, had been had a kind of sense of being a bit of an outsider and then found Faith as a young person um, and had been working as a youth worker and then just felt called to like, launch these festivals, which was an enormous gamble in the early 90s. No one had ever done anything like this in the UK. It was, you know, they never really covered their costs with you know, kept the ticket fees so low. So they relied on kind of donations and living by Faith. Uh, but he had this incredible kind of magnetic, personality you know he's this enormous guy with this shock of kind of curly hair and he would wear these outrageously loud kind of like african print tribal shirts over his big pot belly and he would wander around on stage with his microphone and just you know the, the young people just kind of were just magnetized by him he was incredibly compelling speaker he, he had an he was funny he could laugh at himself he would tell hilarious anecdotes but he also was very passionate about kind of what we would call kind of charismatic, I suppose, like the gifts of the spirit. And his dream was to basically introduce a lot of these Christian youngsters who came from very kind of staid middle of the road churches to this idea of things like prophecy and speaking in tongues and miraculous healings and kind of the power of this intense kind of rock guitar, contemporary Christian worship. Um, and, and yeah, whatever it was, no one could else could re really replicate it. And so people just flocked, flocked to Soul Survivor over many years and, it, yeah, it grew and grew, as I said, to become this kind of behemoth in the youth youth work stream.
1: And then you you uh, did a piece on them, didn't you? Um, because quite unexpectedly, Mike Pilovacci then just suddenly, suddenly brought it to a halt, didn't he? And nobody saw that coming, I think. Is that right?
0: Not at all, no. So in, in 2018, they just announced out of the blue, you know, they'd, the numbers had been fine. They were doing well. It was still you know, the biggest youth festival by far, they'd announced that they were, they were, that 2019, the next year's one would be the last one with less than a year's notice and that they were just kind of shutting down the whole festivals for good. Um, And I immediately realised as a kind of religion journalist, that this was a big story in that, you know, the Soul survivor had been incredibly influential, you know, f- tens of thousands of people had become Christians during it. But more, th- even more than that, people had kind of had their faith kicked into a different gear you know they had they'd like met with the Holy Spirit for the first time and felt called to become worship leaders themselves or a lot of people are called to start social justice charities or or um, take you know go into church leadership and so I ended up doing a couple of different bits of reporting and writing for both kind of secular and Christian press here about how major about what a big deal Soul Survivor was, talked to various kind of church leaders and worship pastors who had come out of it about their reflections on it over the years and and why it had been so influential. Interviewed Mike Pilovaci and wrote it all up and and went and spent a day at the last ever Soul Survivor in And what was your impression overall? I mean, very positive. So I'd never actually gone to them growing up as a child, but knew loads of people who had and um uh, was familiar with kind of what to expect um had gone to the kind of student young adult version once a few years earlier um but yeah it seemed it seemed really good I mean you know what not, was your it
1: was talking to Mike
0: my talk to Mike um yeah, he was an interesting person, you know it seems very humble, very genuine, he seemed very um authentic. I pushed him on you know why are you shutting down and he didn't really have an answer except we just felt like this is what God was calling us to like. Hand it over, and so they were kind of going to promote two or three other festivals that I decided to set up now there's this huge kind of vacuum in the Christian festival market, and said, You know we've been doing this for thirty years. Why not let other people have a go so which I you know, and there was some cynicism at the time, oh, there's some scandal, they ran out of money, but the years have gone by, and none of that has in- initially emerged, and so it all seemed actually they they wholeheartedly meant it, and the saltvi team kind of carried on running their church in Watford. So it wasn't like they kind of packed up shop entirely. Um, But yeah, he seemed like a like a a thoroughly decent, humble, thoughtful, passionate person. Um,
1: And then it's only recently that then quite unexpected things started happening.
0: Yeah. So tragically emerged early this year, thanks to some some reporting by the secular newspapers, actually here in the UK, that um, a number of people had basically made allegations against Mike Pilavacci it's still fairly vague in, in terms of the details that have come out, but basically along the lines of a kind of manipulative, um, inappropriate kind of intense mentor friendships and the kind of more, more extreme end of things is there have been accusations that he would sometimes kind of encourage the, the young people that he was working with. He had these kind of gap year team of apprentices who would come and work with him for a year, kind of 18, 19, 20 years old. You know, he would get them to kind of take their shirts off and do kind of full body massages, which he was apparently very into. Or he would like do kind of like wrestling matches with the young people uh, in full view of the rest of the kind of team and things like that. Um, and so he's been suspended and there is an ongoing investigation into him by the Church of England safeguarding team. Um, he has recently just announced his resignation from Soul survivor. Um the investigation hasn't yet concluded. So we don't really have the kind of facts about what happened or whether these allegations have been substantiated. But ever since that kind of news first broke, this has been this kind of trickle of of people coming forward and saying, you know what, actually I also, my experience as soul survivor wasn't very positive. This is both the church and the festivals that mm. that actually mm. was an environment in where where Mike was kind of incredibly compelling and charismatic and then would just blank you and drop you and not speak to you for six months and he would kind of promise that he would be your spiritual father and would like lead you into ministry and then you would get dropped for someone the kind of the new shiny person coming through and and other things like that so it's a complicated picture mm. but basically he has been uh, accused um by various people of of, of not basically not really d- dealing with his kind of position of influence and leadership
1: well so it seems rather than a sort of primary sexual thing, but it's really about coercion and control, um, which which again is a is is part of this theme, isn't it? Which we we've seen before, and mm. um, I, I think we're going to move on and and play the previous episode, which was particularly uh, around Mark Driscoll. Mm. And can you see some parallels there with um, between the two?
0: interesting very different figures from very different parts of the evangelical world i think the parallels if they exist are around the kind of power of of a magnetic charismatic personality and and a big a big a big part of um of the mark driscoll mars hill story was about how people kind of ignored his personal flaws his bullying his kind of um megalomania narcissism uh because the church was growing and because the, you know, he was building this incredible empire and network and movement and people were finding faith and all that stuff. And I think, you know, potentially there's elements of that, that, you know, maybe it's now coming out that, you know, people have been making complaints about Mike actually going back as far as 20 years ago and it never really went anywhere. And did that happen because, Hit, 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 people just thought, well, Soul Survivor is so great. You know, so many young people are coming and for the first time finding faith and being alive to the works of the Spirit and listening to great preaching and worship and praying. And and um, maybe we, we people were prepared to say, well, you know, he's a complicated person. He's a bit. He's a bit flawed, but it's worth putting him on a pedestal, putting him on a stage, and giving him this incredible platform because he's got this unique, secret gift of, of en- engaging young people. So maybe there's an element of overlap there. I think the thing with the Mark Pilbatchy story is that it's, it's one of those really messy ones where thankfully there hasn't been any allegations, suggestion of kind of outright, as you say, kind of sexual abuse or, or something like that, but it's this kind of murky world of what's sometimes called spiritual abuse about, you know, the complex relationships between older Christian leaders and, and young often in this case, young men who are kind of in a quasi mentor quasi father like relationship and how that is just so much potential to get, go wrong and for people to be maybe without even the older person realizing have feeling quite broken and quite hurt and bruised and wounded by by that experience
1: yeah i mean it's it's uh, an issue that i've been grappling with because i've been writing this book called transforming friendship um, which is due to come out in november and which the main focus is about these intergenerational friendships uh, between older people particularly men and, and younger people and and using sort of Paul-Timothy uh, relationship in in the epistles, you know, as a sort of model for this, uh, as well as trying to talk about the practical risks and dangers, because I think what comes out to me is that those um, relationships are, you know, the, these intergenerational Paul-Timothy relationships are potentially very transformative. I mean, my friendship with Stott, John Stott was... Uh, very transformative for me and changed my life completely and yet it's precisely those relationships which are most at risk because mm. of the massive power imbalance well, once you have this kind of senior uh, re- religious spiritual leader who is claiming some kind of spiritual authority you know i'm in the place of god god has given me this authority god has given me and uh, and then you have a, a a younger impressionable and vulnerable person, you know, who idolizes the older man, you're setting up a, a scenario in which, in which it seems it almost, it's almost custom designed to go wrong. Mm. And I, that's why I think it's so important to talk about these and, and, and then to talk about, well, what are the guide rules? What are the, what, what can you put in place? to try to at least minimise the risk of this this abuse and all the damage. That, how can we prevent it from happening? A lot of it seems to me it's all about education. We've just got to talk about it. We've got to help people to, to think what's happened in other abuse scandals is that time and again the younger person has said, you know, it, it felt uncomfortable, it felt a bit weird, and I thought... You know, this this doesn't seem right. And yet this man is such a great spiritual giant. I mean, who am I to question it? And and I think what comes out is that you've got to trust your intuitions. If you're getting those intuitions that something is unhealthy, something doesn't feel right, then do something about it. Don't just uh, say, oh, well, he's a great spiritual leader. It's probably fine. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I guess this has huge implications for you as an you know, older Christian person who is in a number of kind of relationships of kind of mentoring and encouraging younger Christian leaders. It must have made you reflect on, you know, have you changed your practice as a result?
1: Yeah, uh, and the truth is I have. Uh, I'm much more aware of the risk that I could be unintentionally um, manipulative or coercive. And and I think some of the ways I've changed my practice is I've uh, what, one of the helpful things I think that came out from my own study and reading about this is that what you've got to do is give the younger person space, um, partly space to disagree, uh, so that you actually, instead of sort of coercing them, you know, this is the way I want you to do it. This is the way I think is right. Actually, welcoming disagreement, saying you know what do you think, and you you may think differently, and that's fine, you know. And but also, I think helping giving young people the sense that they've got to take the running in the relationship rather than me saying you know I think we should do X Y Z. I, I'm deliberately trying to be you know well you know that's fine you know what what would you like to do and you know it, I'm, I'm instead of chasing people up and saying why haven't you come and seen me, you know I'm letting people. Letting them take the running, and and also, to be honest, I'm much more conscious about meeting in a public place, um, not not meeting in uh, privately, and making sure that other people are aware what's going on, and there's some kind of accountability, discussing with other people in a similar situation. So we do a kind of peer to peer accountability for the friendships we're in. Well, that sounds sounds wise um
0: should we should we queue up the uh the old episode then this will kind of begins with an introduction discussion of the the excellent podcast we still recommend the rise and fall of mars hill which all kind of covers the mark driscoll scandal in, in great detail and and then we go on to talk about some of these ideas about how we in the church might respond to these kind of destructive uh coercive relationships and how we can do better so i hope you enjoy <music> Hi, John. Uh, good to speak to you again um, for another Matters of Life and Death podcast. Um, this week, uh, we wanted to start by actually talking about another podcast we've both been listening to and enjoying recently, uh, which I think some of our listeners probably are aware of as well, but uh, it's it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it's, um, it's a fascinating podcast by the American magazine Christianity Today. Uh, It's a long series, uh, a long in-depth investigation into uh, the kind of famous or maybe infamous uh, church network Mars Hill, which was led by uh, the pastor Mark Driscoll um, and then kind of collapsed in acrimony and scandal about seven or so years ago. Um, But I think what we've found interesting about it, John, I'm interested to hear what you think, is that beyond the immediate and interesting kind of story of Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, it's really illuminating on some quite recent evangelical history, it's pulled out themes around narcissistic leadership and toxic church culture, celebrity Christianity, but also around um, the power imbalances around kind of toxic leadership. What what stood out for you when you've been listening?
1: Yeah, I, um, you put me in touch with this um, podcast, Tim, and I must say I've found it a very gripping uh, series. It's very well produced and it really tells the story of the Mars Hill Church and, and Mark Driscoll and... Uh, the role that he played and uh, it's a fascinating story and, and um, but it does bring out a lot of uh, very important and interesting themes um, about Christian leadership and and in particular about the abuse of power and and the way that um, it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it because you know traditionally it was the Catholic Church, which focused power in the the person of the priest. And one of the whole um, emphases of the Reformation was that it took that power away from a man in this special privileged position uh, in the priestly role and put much greater emphasis, both on the importance of the word of God, but also on the community together, on, on body life. And isn't it interesting that that it's actually these sort of hyper-reformed uh, groups, uh, some of them like Mark Driscoll's uh, church, who who have reinstated this sort of the centrality of the powerful man as as the as the leader of the of the church.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's actually um, it's really interesting because I think if you if you wind the clock back maybe ten or fifteen years ago, as the kind of whole church was was waking up to the tragic. Um, like breadth of the of the abuse scandal in the Catholic Church um, in lots of countries. you saw sometimes I think uh, some Protestants who were slightly smug or even maybe sneering at, at the scandals and suggesting it was all, it was all in part a result of um, Catholic theology or church practice, you know having a, a single celibate priest as the, as the all-powerful head of a congregation hierarchies and ecclesiologies and things like that and i think um a sad irony of the last three or four or five years is is that is that we've seen that that kind of smugness from from protestants from evangelicals uh is completely misplaced because every tribe and every flavor of evangelicalism has seen one of its own leaders its own kind of revered figureheads uh, exposed as an as an abuser of power um you know People will know the name, there's a long litany of them and and Mark Driscoll is sadly just just one of many.
1: Yes, indeed. And and I think um, it has been an extraordinary period, hasn't it, of, of a of, of a of a constant litany of, of prominent Christian leaders who some kind of really serious allegations of of either sexual misconduct or of of abuse of power or, or sometimes a toxic combination of the two of sex and power yeah i mean
0: we've got um jonathan fletcher who is this incredibly prominent leader in the conservative evangelical anglican world um long time uh, vicar at emmanuel wimbledon in south london um last year it was it was ravi zacharias um who is this internationally famous uh, evangelist who was revealed as prominent sexual abuser and involved in in much sexual misconduct uh, you had john smythe who was um heavily uh, involved in the ewan trust youth camps who it re- was it's been revealed that he um would regularly and sadistically beat uh young young men uh, in his garden shed um steve timmis from the crowded house uh kind of non-denominational evangelical independent evangelical movement in in sheffield um, he was he was removed over uh, allegations of spiritual abuse uh, a few years ago um people would have heard of the name of Jean vanier who's a internationally famous and renowned um, church leader and theologian uh, who founded the the lash movement of of homes for those with learning difficulties uh, and those without living side by side um i mean to be honest it just it becomes i mean i kind of feel i think others do as well quite, quite battered and quite bruised by all of this. I mean, even these are people I never personally knew, but you just sometimes feel like we're just kind of stealing ourselves for the next beloved and respected Christian leader to be exposed as someone completely different to who, who they said they were.
1: Yes, I, I think that's right. And, and I think it is incredibly corrosive, isn't it? Because you find yourself looking at prominent names in the, in the Christian world, either of the present or the past, and saying, you wonder, you know, what... What else is it possible that there's some new scandal is about to break at any moment, and so that leads to a to a sense of suspicion, and and a, a failure to trust. And then, and then the the question comes: Well, how should we respond to this? And and certainly, I've been quite troubled by people who have said that perhaps the only response is that we just have to tell everyone: well, Look, we're all fallen. You know, even our leaders they're all fallen people they're all deeply sinful and therefore you can't trust anybody you know you simply have to be aware that abuse and uh, abuse of power and sexual misconduct and so on is is everywhere and therefore you do, we we just can't trust anybody
0: yeah and i mean to be honest that does actually really kind of chime true for me too in in many ways I mean, as part of, as part of my old um, day job, as it where I, I spent a lot of time writing stories, news stories about the latest abuse scandals in church, and I even interviewed several um, victims of, of, of clerical sex abuse, and it really does kind of wear you down to the point where it kind of feels like the safest option is to almost um, presume that nobody nobody is safe. Um, everyone is potentially guilty until proven innocent in some kind of perverse mirror image of how that's kind of normally supposed to work. Um, Cause it just, it just feels too risky to, to say, um, Oh, I'm sure that person is, is good because the very next day, who knows they could be exposed to something really, really bad.
1: Yes. And, and what I'm particularly interested in is what this does to friendship and in particular to intergenerational friendship, to friendships between older men and, and younger men, between older women and Younger men and 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 so on, um, because these kind of relationships, so-called Paul Timothy relationships uh, of both genders, uh, have always been at the sort of bedrock of of Christian uh, understanding and also, you know, of Christian practice. That um, I've been reading some of the letters of John Newton and um, William Wilberforce and, and, and that era. And what what's plain is that they had this very rich network of friendships, which were incredibly significant, but which went right across the generations and across the sexes. I mean, Newton was having close relationships with young women, with young men, with older men, with older women. Um, and uh, it, it was seen as absolutely central to what it meant to, to, to follow Christ, to have these deep, intimate friendships.
0: And yet, you know, w- when I hear that, or I think when a, l- a lot of people hear that, um, their hackles will, will start to raise. Uh, and we'll be like, "Oh, John John Newton, famous Christian leader, had close relationships, close friendships with younger women? That, that doesn't seem right. That, that doesn't seem wise. There's something suspect about that.
1: Yeah, well I think it's helpful just to step backwards I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm, I'm trying to write a book on friendship uh, and, and actually deal with these issues both with uh, some of the abuse of friendships that, that have become very prominent but also trying to ask, you know, what's the wider cultural context, how can we understand this and also how can we then think positively build up healthy uh, life transforming friendships and and i found it's very helpful to think about the concept of what's been called the hermeneutic of suspicion uh, hermeneutics of course is a uh, refla- refers really to the interpretation of manuscripts of texts uh, when we talk about biblical hermeneutics and so on and the hermeneutics of suspicion starts as a as a kind of literary uh, process a way of in other words, when you read a text, an ancient historical text, for instance, you don't just take it at first value, a faith's value. You, you you apply the hermeneutic of suspicion. You say, I wonder why the author wrote it that way. I wonder what he was trying to hide. I wonder if there's another interpretation. It's that kind of hermeneutic of suspicion. But then the idea comes that we we apply this in the whole of life. It's not just when we read a historical text, but it's we apply the hermeneutic of suspicion to relationships. So we see... Uh, as you say, we, we hear about a relationship between an older man and a younger woman who's not his wife, and immediately the hermeneutic of suspicion says, mm, "I wonder what was going on there." I, you know, was it sexual or was it abusive? Was was there some kind of uh, inappropriate behaviour going on there? It doesn't sound right.
0: And and, and what what where, where does that where do you think that kind of comes from? Where does this hermeneutic of suspicion come from? Where are its roots? Um, why have we become so suspicious and uh, and, and act like that when, when we hear about these kind of, of relationships?
1: Well, it's it's an interesting process to try and uncover this because it's so universal now that we almost don't think about it. I mean, it's just, it's there in the knee-jerk reaction. But I think many people think we can trace it back to some of the very formative uh, influences in in Western thinking and Western civilization. And I mean, the basic idea behind the hermeneutic of suspicion is that all relationships are basically motivated by either sex or power, or some combination of the two. That's basically what drives relationships. And therefore, in order to understand a relationship, we've got to try and dig out what's driving this it's either sex or power so and and many people then trace that to um, some very prominent thinkers uh, whose thinking has penetrated from the academy and down into into uh, everyday life and of course one of the most obvious ones is Sigmund Freud so
0: a lot of people will have will have heard that name and and know that he's something to do with um, psychology or or psychiatry. Uh, but could you explain a little bit about her, who Freud was and and how he came up with this idea that sex and power were at, were at the root of um, all relationships?
1: Yeah, Fre- Freud is a, is a sort of fascinating character because he's a very respectable uh, neurologist. He's trained as a as a doctor, but he's 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 prides himself on being the cutting edge of of, of science, uh, but he develops a a, a kind of novel approach to to his patients. He's 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 doing private practice uh, in in Vienna, and uh, he has the idea that instead of um, just examining patients and then prescribing medication he's actually going to listen to them and so he develops this technique he 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 has a he he has a shares long in fact interestingly the um the Freud museum is is present in north London still and you can go and visit it and I've actually seen the the original shares long which is there in his study and what he did was he he got the patient to lie down on the on the chairs long in a darkened room and he was up by the head end out of the patient's view with a notepad and he he simply asked the patient to talk about their past without interrupting them and he would just get them to just recall everything they could remember from their past and he just took notes and uh, he his patients had neurological symptoms particularly hysteria and neurosis they were dominated by anxiety or sometimes strange uh, symptoms and uh, and what he found to his astonishment as these highly respectable middle-class people from Vienna talked about their past is that many of them talked about sexual experiences they had as a child sometimes as a very young child and uh, initially he, he developed the theory that it was some kind of early sexual experience that was the cause of their neurotic symptoms, which was a completely new idea. And he, he published or presented some papers where he put forward this hypothesis um, and that, suggesting that these, these uh, patients had actually been abused by some adults um, as, when they were young children. Um, but not surprisingly, Must have caused a bit of a stir, I imagine, you know, <laughs> in early nineteenth, twentieth century Vienna. Absolutely, you can just imagine the response—the horrified response—from the respectable burghers of Vienna that here was this doctor suggesting that that, that some of their precious children from middle-class homes were, were being subject to abuse from adults, both male and female. And and Freud went back, following this rough reception of his ideas and reinterpreted that actually what was going on was that it was all fantasy that these and that he came to the conclusion that these were all invented incidents fantastic incidents that the patient had invented and he therefore concluded that infantile sexual fantasy was an extremely important part a motivating part of the um of the way of of, of how all children developed
0: so he's basically saying is that rather than genuine experiences, what his par- patients are recounting to him are, are their brain making up stories about these sexual experiences. And he concluded that, th- that these were kind of normal, healthy, positive parts of how children kind of develop into into adults.
1: Yeah, and, and in fact that infants were highly sexual beings. Again, you know, this caused out, outrage amongst the respectable burghers. Uh a uh, of Vienna, but what he was saying is that infant who looks so innocent uh sucking quietly on the breast, is actually filled with with sexual longing and is developing pleasure. they're motivated by libido and you know, and therefore he he came up with all these ideas male infants wanted to possess their mothers and kill their fathers, and female infants were were haunted by penis envy and 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 neurosis and mental illness occurs because of these conflicts, which are all uh, created in these uh, in these in in in, in these infants.
0: Uh, and this idea, despite being controversial at first, gradually becomes accepted. Does it the consensus?
1: Well, it's interesting that he uh, Freud complex, uh, claimed that this was all entirely scientific, based on on you know strong scientific evidence. In fact when psychologists later on tried to test these freudian theories by looking for scientific evidence to support it by and large the evidence just hasn't been found it just isn't there so from a scientific psychology and child development point of view these freudian theories by and large have have been dismissed but they've turned out to be immensely influential in psychoanalysis and in and then through psychoanalysis into the general ideas in 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 general culture
0: so you're saying this idea that that humans are driven by the poorly understood sexual drives and impulses which which colors every relationship we have from from childhood onwards has no scientific basis but but has kind of been smuggled into the culture nonetheless
1: yes that's right and uh, I don't want to say it has absolutely no scientific basis, but it certainly doesn't have the dominant scientific evidence that Freud claimed. But these ideas have become very common. And very interestingly, you know, I've gone back and read a bit of Freud, and and Freud is quite over that he has a kind of hydraulic metaphor. Because, of course, the the late 19th century was the time when steam engines were very, very... was the most powerful uh, machines around... And, and Freud conceives of libido as as this, this driving the engine of 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 this of the psyche, you know, that the energy the is is under that it is like the steam that's driving the engine. and then it's being constrained and repressed by other forces. and the and and sometimes this whole sort of steam, the libido bursts out with catastrophic consequences. and 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 in order to be a healthy, person you've got to sort of constrain and sublimate the libido you've got to direct it in healthy areas so like a safety valve you know to remove this excess energy that's building up inside this is pure hydraulics and it's interesting of course that modern understanding of the way the nervous system is not at all like that at all it's a much more like uh, information processing and uh, communication and much more like a computer than like a, a steam engine
0: so, so that's what you think potentially part of the kind of genesis of this idea, the suspicious idea that behind lots of supposedly normal um, platonic friendships and relationships might actually be lots of kind of strange, complex sexual ideas and longings. Um, what, what about power?
1: Yeah, just before we get on power, just, just two quick points. One is that the whole point that Freud says is that it's all concealed. You know, things which appear to be completely respectable an innocent behaviour, is actually all motivated by sex, but it's cleverly concealed. And that's why you have to have the hermeneutic of suspicion. You've got to peel it away. And of course, that's what psychoanalysis was supposed to do. But but the other little poignant point I want to make, and that is that uh, 70 years later, and we're now talking of the 1960s, 1970s, paediatricians uh, like myself were starting to become aware of the fact that sexual abuse and physical abuse was a real phenomenon. And we hadn't recognized it. And uh, we now know that unfortunately, both child physical abuse and child sexual abuse is astonishingly common. A very significant percentage of all children have had some kind of abusive experience. And so when you go back and read those accounts of Freud, uh, it seems very likely that that many of the patients that he thought were having infantile sexual fantasies had in fact been abused by adults uh, but he, but it was simply impossible for him and for the respectable vna's community to to acknowledge that so it's it's sort of poignant isn't it to think of 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 what was going on and yet we're it's only very recently that we've been able to acknowledge the level of abuse that goes on among amongst uh, between adults and children mm, and,
0: and yeah and, and you kind of feel very much if if freud had been born a hundred years later and was presenting his initial theory in our kind of post-savile world people would have had um much less difficulty accepting the idea that there was widespread um widespread abuse of, of children
1: and the whole theory of infantile sexuality in the Oedipal complex and penis envy and everything else might well never have been developed.
0: So that sex um how do we understand where the suspicion around power is coming from
1: well power comes from a, a different uh historical background and particularly i think this is where the 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 figure of nietzsche the philosopher the german philosopher nietzsche uh a very complex and and tormented figure but uh to put it very crudely, Nietzsche starts a way of thinking, which is then taken on by other thinkers, particularly uh, the French philosopher Michel Foucault. Um, that power relations are is the way to understand everything. So instead of sex, you've got to think about power, and 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 what uh, Nietzsche is saying is that in the end power is the only thing that matters, all this thing about finding goodness and morality, uh, finding truth and falsehood, they're all ultimately about power. They're defined by the powerful. And uh, Foucault says whenever somebody makes a truth claim, whenever they claim this is true, there's always a power relationship. They're always smuggling in because I am powerful, I have the right to say what is true. When I and when I claim something to be true, I'm actually making a claim to power. And these ideas, again, start off as a kind of esoteric philosophical theory. Uh, but then they gradually penetrate out into, um, into secular culture. and and you know, many of us are aware of the whole phenomenon of, of the woke culture which has just really emerged in the last few years. Uh, And that's a classic example of this kind of analysis, postmodern analysis, that says, if you want to understand society, if you want to understand the relationships, you've got to see it in terms of power. Who are the powerful people? Who are the people who are being oppressed?
0: Mm. I think think that's really fascinating to me because... Uh, when you do read analysis of, of what, is, um, what is coming under the label of wokeism or whatever you want to call it, um, a lot of it is this idea of <clears throat> stripping away some of those kind of bourgeois liberal ideals about individuals and saying, no, no, it's all about systemic power structures and how in every society there are you know, the oppressors and the oppressed. And, and whenever an oppressor says X or Y is a, is a virtuous act... Uh, you, you, you have to be in intensely suspicious, if not outright dismissive, uh, because being, for example, me, you know, a, a white, cis, heterosexual male, I've got so much privilege and, and power that even if I wanted to try and, and be progressive and, and that kind of thing, I am, I am slightly constrained by my position and by, by having power over others. So a lot of it is about trying to, to tilt the balance and create space for the oppressed and those who, who do not sit at the top of these overlapping indices of, of privilege and power to say you know, they have the right to decide what is virtuous, what is good, uh, what is moral and, and what is not.
1: Absolutely. And, and the problem with analysis in terms of power is that really the only response is revolution. So that those who are oppressed should now come out on top And become top dog um, the the idea of collaboration of of harmony of uh, is not really uh, i mean it's naive it's simplistic it doesn't happen there's always power there's always going to be oppressors there's always going to be the oppressed and you know if one just looks at American society in particular and the kind of polarization between right and left um it it is a desperate struggle for power and and and, and there are there are no the, the, there's no truck when you're trying to find compromise it's simply a, a constant struggle as to who's going to come out on top
0: so this hermeneutic of suspicion is that the idea that that lying behind all friendships or relationships all human interaction However benign or, or equal they might seem, um, the, the actual forces that play behind them is, is these complex things about, about sex and power. <clears throat> but here's the problem, John. Uh, we began this podcast talking about Mark Driscoll and Ravi Zacharias, the the John Smythes, the Jonathan Fletchers. Don't these people all confirm that the hermeneutic of suspicion was right all along? You know, these, these were people who were held up as, as models of Christian witness and, and leadership who were supposed to be, demonstrating a a different way of of doing relationship and and doing friendship with congregations, with their wives, with mentors, with younger people across the generations. And and actually, it turns out we we were lied to. Uh, There wasn't any kind of agape, self-giving, respectful love there. It was all actually about sex and power as well.
1: Exactly. And I think that is exactly why these scandals are so profoundly damaging and corrosive because it's like they just say aha we were right all along you know it's all about sex and power um that's what all leaders are motivated by is what they're constantly looking for they're either looking for sexual gratification or they're looking for ways of abusing and dominating and oppressing the weak and um it so so these scandals just accentuate the whole cultural suspicion Um, and my great concern is that therefore you know christians will conclude it's simply too dangerous for instance to have friendships between older men and younger women it's all between older women and younger men or between older men and younger men Uh, you know these, these this is too dangerous it's going to be misinterpreted and the safest course is just to say you know, keep everyone at arm's length. You know, I'm allowed to be close to my wife. I'm allowed to be close to my children. And apart from that, you just keep, just keep everyone at arm's length so that we couldn't be misinterpreted.
0: And that idea, uh, while it seems like quite a a modern idea, and I think there will be plenty of people who've adopted it in the kind of wake of these recent scandals, it's it's not actually totally new. I mean, the the Billy Graham rule, which is how he, he lived and how many other kind of male Christian leaders have also adopted? It says, you know, to to never be alone in a room with a woman who's not your wife, and, and that's how Billy Graham lived his whole his whole ministry. It's down John Stott and many others as well. Uh, that fundamentally uh, comes from the same place, doesn't it?
1: Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? You know, because I've been reflecting on on this and on the scandals, particularly the Jonathan Fletcher scandals, which come which comes out of the Ewan camp and. The fascinating thing about that era, and you know, I've been reflecting on my friendship, uh, very close friendship with John Stott, and and I'm aware that as soon as I talk about my friendship with John Stott and the fact that we spent many hours alone together and uh, shared some deep intimate stuff, immediately the hermeneutic of suspicion is active, you know, and, and what was going on there and was stopped abusing Wyatt or was he trying to exert power and manipulate him? Was so,
0: Wyatt trying to exploit Scott, you know, to uh, to build his, his burgeoning, help build his burgeoning Christian punditry career?
1: <laughs> yes, quite, thanks very much. But, um, and, and of course, that's that's absolutely, that's how the of suspicion works. Um, and what struck, strikes me about that generation, and I think, you know, you said it exactly about Billy Graham, is that although they were completely obsessed about any hint of heterosexual impropriety, when it came to the possibility of homosexual same-sex attraction, they were seemed to be completely heedless. I mean, Stott didn't, was not at all concerned about um, being alone with, with young men. As uh, sometimes when he was traveling, he even shared bedrooms with them apparently. And, and, and this was, nobody raised an eyebrow and, or even thought how it might appear. And yet they came out of a public school culture where it was well known that homoerotic behaviour, you know, was taking place in some of the schools. And uh, so it's not as though they were unaware of the possibility of same-sex attraction.
0: And that's what seems remarkable when you look, when you look back on, as you say, they had a, a laser focus on affairs. Uh, you know, I think that, and that came from a good place. I mean, when Billy Graham had made his famous rule... At the start of his ministry in in the early nineteen fifties, I think there had actually just been several um, famous early kind of televangelists or um, a tra- traveling kind of gospel ministers who who had had affairs and kind of ruined their ministries and and besmirched the gospel and and sadly even to this day, you know, we know it's it's not uncommon for for men for Christian leaders to to have affairs uh, with people who are not their wives. Um, but given that they came from this this British upper-class, public school, kind of muscular Christianity world, uh, I do find it remarkable that they didn't consider that to be something to be aware of, you know, know, the possibility of of same-sex issues, uh, particularly between kind of older and and younger men.
1: And And I think there was a level of naivety in that they, I think, believed, I think people like Stott and others would believe that it was simply unconscionable that a Christian leader might abuse... His position, even if he was uh, same-sex attracted, um, and therefore there was no need to make put in special safeguards, and I think you know now, knowing what we know, that seems extraordinarily naive and, and heedless.
0: So, so what are we kind of con- concluding here? I mean, you seem to be saying that the hermeneutical suspicion is bad, but that also we probably need a little bit more of it in church.
1: Yes, well, I, I think we can't unlearn what we've learned, and nor should we, or or try to ignore it. And, and, of course, we must remember that what the abuse scandals have demonstrated is the terrible level of damage that abuse from Christian leaders, the permanent damage that it causes to other people, particularly to people, young Christians and and others who've been influenced by their ministry. And one of the really interesting but tragic aspects of the Mars Hill podcast, isn't it, is is the way that the um, the journalists, the investigators, they seem they want to be honest about the fact that, Mark Driscoll and, and the Mars Hill Church, you know, there was obvious, genuine spiritual impact on people's lives, uh, positive impact. And yet at the same time, uh, when the whole thing sort of auto-destructs uh, because of Mark Driscoll's behavior, that many people who've been deeply influenced by him end up as spiritual casualties, deeply hurt and, and traumatized uh, because of their experiences.
0: And this is the really tragic tragic part of when you read some of the, the stories from the victims and survivors of those names that we talked about, who were instrumental in, in exposing them by, by bravely com- coming forward and telling their own stories at, at huge personal cost. It's had a devastating impact on a lot of people who are who are victims of abusive christian leaders they end up you know losing their faith and and who can blame them you know when, when the person who was supposed to be loving them as god does ends up actually hurting them um i guess and then, and another complicated issue is it also has an effect on everyone who ever looked up to them you know who put jonathan fletcher or or rabbi zechariah on a pedestal and said that that's an example of what i want to aim for or or they've taught me in a remarkable way about about who God is and, and what it means to follow him, and suddenly it's kind of so complex when, when it turns out actually they're, they're not the person that you thought they were.
1: Yes, and so I think one of the obvious take-home messages from all this is that we've really got to avoid the pedestal syndrome, which, which seems to be very, very strong in so many churches, this desire to put one or few people in some very exalted position We treat them with exaggerated respect. We regard them as uh, having a very, very profound spiritual authority. And yet, as soon as uh, any kind of scandal breaks, then immediately they're then cast into outer darkness. We eradicate their books from our shelves. We uh, remove them from the internet. Uh, They're they're non-persons. There's a very black and white Uh, approach which and of course reality is much more complex and nuanced than that
0: I mean I I think you've said this before and I I think it's right Uh, one of the besetting sins of evangelicalism is this insistence on making everything black and white and everything falls into the category of good sound or true or it must be bad unsound and and untrue and and we'd be discovering like like many things in life. People can't so easily be categorized like that, you know. You know, I mean, I I've, I've read a book by by Mark Driscoll, which at the time I I found it really good and helpful exposition about the theology of the cross. You know, should should I burn that book now or or expunge it from my memory because I, I kind of now understand what a what a narcissistic bullying character he was. You know, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it certainly colours how I would read the book again, but i'm not sure we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater and and say he was a bad man and therefore everything he did was also bad and he was never really a christian anyway and and everyone who has been impacted by him needs to kind of expunge him from their soul
1: yeah so i think what we need to do is first of all be much more careful about how we choose our leaders and that's so often what's happened in the recent christian history is is leaders have been selected and come to prominence because of their gifts their vision their ability to persuade people their ability to raise money and so on and that's absolutely clear about mark driscoll he was clearly a very gifted very charismatic in the non-spiritual sense um able to sway thousands of people by his oratory and so on and yet it's clear i mean he was a very young he was had obvious character flaws he was a deeply damaged person and it's very interesting as has often been said that that in the new testament the criteria for leaders is almost entirely based on character not on giftedness i mean the emphasis in selecting leaders is all about character and and i think we need to re rediscover that and put much more emphasis on character and on assessing people's character and and looking for evidence of of maturity and, and, and identifying character flaws rather than being bamboozled by people who are astonishingly gifted.
0: Yeah, and I think for me that's one of the big takeaways from from the Mars Hill podcast: uh, the idea that people were kind of blinded by his his charisma and his gifting, but he actually lacked the integrity and and what we need first and foremost uh, in our leaders is character and, and kind of gifting, because it's, it's secondary to that. Um, so just as we kind of move towards a, a kind of final thought. Uh, what we're saying, I, I guess, is that absolutely we we can't and we don't want to unlearn what we've learned. Uh, we definitely need to be a lot wiser and and less complacent than early generations. But but uh, but you would be very reluctant to go further than that, and and, and to be saying cross generational or or even cross gender friendships are just are just too difficult or risky, and we should just steer away
1: from them entirely within church. Absolutely. In fact, I want to do quite the reverse. I want to encourage people, particularly older people. To go out of their way to be developing uh, cross generational friendships with with younger people, uh, very much as a two way process of both giving and learning. Uh, But we need to teach people about friendship. We need to teach people about what the warning signs are, where where it becomes abusive. One of the fascinating things to me that came out of the Mars Hill um, podcast is how frequently uh, Mark Driscoll insisted on utter loyalty from his team and from his church members and it was reiterated unless you are totally loyal to me uh, then you're you're out i'm not interested and and that should have been a massive red flag i mean any leader who insists on complete and utter loyalty uh, should immediately raise question marks and um and the same was true about jonathan fletcher apparently it's it's reported again that he insisted on complete and utter loyalty from the people that lived for them and 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 then, the question is well, why is that because of concern that that um they will see flaws in the character in their behaviour and that this will then uh ruin their image so and I think there are other red flags as well, which we need to educate people that that about the ways that friendship go wrong, but that doesn't mean that friendship itself between generations is wrong or dangerous and quite the reverse. And so trying to find healthy ways of, 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 of building healthy transformative friendships that are mutually giving, that are not based on sex and power. They don't have to be. They can be based on on love and self-sacrifice. And, and what I think of uh, as, as the logic of the gospel, the, the fact that the gospel is based on the breaking down of barriers, on self-giving to the other on respect on honesty on openness and on love and there's just so much more we we could say you know about what
0: true christian friendship looks like out, outside of the hermeneutic of suspicion and i guess um we're probably going to we're going to hope to come back to that in a in a further podcast you're, you're obviously still researching and, and writing this book on friendship, so there's going to be loads of material you'll want to share and I think it's an important topic that, that we should come back to I mean it's it's such a big theme in the New Testament Jesus talks about how I, I no longer call you servants but friends and in greater love has no one than he that he lays down his life for his friends and there's a real theme of friendship there which I think we often skate over and we talk about being brothers and sisters and use kind of the, f- the familial family metaphor, but actually the language of friendship is, is really central to the gospel.
1: Yeah, and so the real challenge for us as 21st century Christians is how can we reimagine friendship in the light of all this hermeneutic suspicion, in the light of these terrible scandals? How can we reimagine Christian friendship in a way that is true to the gospel, that is true to the spirit, and, and, and yet which is aware of the, the risks and the dangers which we now are so painfully aware. So, so I, I hope that um, you know we can carry on the conversation. I hope maybe that some people who are listening to this podcast will will uh, will respond and, and we can be all part of this conversation as we try to work out how friendship can be reimagined as we look into the future.